Hey there, and welcome back to the show. And uh, today we have another amazing episode. I got to say, one of my favorite episodes to date, and such an important topic that we're going to be hopping into today. Uh, because this is a longer than usual episode, I don't have any announcements, and I actually don't have any announcements or advertising or anything on this one for the simple fact that I want you to share this and get this out there. Uh, the topic today, once again, is vaccines. And just like I had Del Bigtree on uh, before, today we have Dr. James Lyons Weiler on the show, officially known as Dr. Jack. We do get into Jack's background fairly early on in the podcast, so I will refrain from getting too far into it. Uh, I will just say, though, that Jack is a longtime veteran in the world of science and research. Uh, his specialties include areas of genomics, proteomics, bioinformatics, and evolutionary biology. Uh, he is a PhD in ecology, evolution, and and conservation biology and as you will hear is an expert in translational science and so many different areas um, he's an author of three books which we do mention in the podcast today and just a wealth of information uh, when it comes to the topics of vaccines autism and so many others so I must say, today's episode just gets into so much that it's almost too much to cover here in the intro. Uh, some general highlights, um, and you know, Dr. Jack just does a fantastic job of really explaining the science very well and explaining the manipulation of science and the data and, and stuff that sometimes is a little bit hard to wrap your head around. But some of the high-ticket items or the highlights that we talk about here, uh, we talk about vaccine safety. Right, and obviously we talk about the flawed, um, just the the flawed studies and manipulation of data, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we also talk a lot about efficacy, and there's a lot to unpack there. But simply things like vaccine waning, so essentially vaccines losing their effect. Um, we talk about things like herd immunity, why it's almost impossible to avoid outbreaks, um, and. From there, we really springboard into mandatory vaccinations and um, really unpack that. Uh, Jack does offer um, some pretty good insight in terms of loopholes and in terms of what the law actually says regarding um, mandatory vaccines. One of the things which I think you will find interesting, and I encourage you to look at the show notes, um, I will throw a link up there, especially for those of you in Canada listening to this, but the idea of post-market surveillance, all right, and essentially us uh, as you know patients uh, being enrolled uh, against our will or unbeknownst to us into a post-market surveillance um, system, right? Technically, that's not actually allowed. Um, it is against the law, and this could very well be the Achilles' heel that we're looking for here in terms of preserving our rights and freedom to choose. So I think I'm going to leave it at that because this episode is a little bit longer than usual. Um, I encourage you to give it a good listen through. I would also encourage you, if you haven't done so, to listen to my episode with Del Bigtree. Um, I'll put a link up there in the show notes as well. And I must say, between these two episodes, you will be armed with a ton of useful information that is explained very, very well. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. And uh, please welcome to the show, uh, Dr. James Lyonsweiler. All right, Dr. Jack, welcome to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. It is fantastic to have you here today. Thank you, Brett. 
Um, so I want to just start off with, you know, going through your bio, going through um, the books that you've written and the research that you've done. I really want to just do um, due diligence here and set this up correctly um, and basically just lay out a little bit of your um, academic background, your research background, and so on. So you are currently editor-in-chief of Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law, which is, as far as I understand, a peer-reviewed um, journal. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, you have also been a guest contributor to Children's Health Defense, which is um, Robert F. Kennedy's um, project in the U.S. And then author mm -hmm. of three books, which I'm sure we'll sort of touch on them um, in our conversation today because they're very relevant to the topic that we're going to be talking about. So the first one is the environmental and genetic causes of autism. Um, then Cures versus Profits, so Successes in Translational Research, which I want you to actually explain what that means because um, it's uh, not a very well-known um, area of, of study. Sure. And then um, Ebola, an evolving story. So um, did I do a good job? And I think the last one is IPAC, right? Is that a newer venture for you or, or where does no, that I, sort of come in? IPAC is the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. It's a biomedical research institute that uh, focuses on reduces on reducing human pain and suffering through knowledge. It's a uh, it's it's a, it's a uh, registered not for profit in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we stress that we are acting as a pure public charity, but we have to actually apply to change our designation. Um, we are uh, not interested in profiting from anything that we do. I, I can't. If, if I invent a, a new biomarker uh, for autism or something like that, I can't actually patent it. I, I want okay. to be able to do research in a way that is unfettered and unbiased from the draw of mass profit from millions of people consuming a product that might derive from our research. Mm. And I think it's important because obviously what we're going to be talking about a fair bit today is the ties between, you know, for-profit medicine and how that spills over into policy. Um, and obviously one of the big things we want to talk about today is mandating vaccinations, et cetera. So I think that, um, you know, the line that you've taken really is, is a very noble line, um, which, you know, I applaud. And I think it's actually quite necessary because, you know, the, the marriage of uh, science and profit and public policy is, um, I don't know, it's a, very, it's a very interesting and perhaps dangerous marriage that is really starting to all come out in the wash um, as we move forward here. Yeah, so that was the impetus in part for my book, Cures versus Profits, to address the translational research aspect of that. I spent uh, a number of years at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute um, as a faculty member, I was in the faculty, uh, a full, full faculty member in the Cancer Institute, and I was in the Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and I was also, I helped found and I was a member of the Department of Biomedical Informatics. But um, the purpose of translational research really is to attempt to, the translational research is, to define it first, is to take information from one stage of scientific inquiry into another stage of scientific inquiry or into clinical practice or back to science. So, the, 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 for instance, if you have, um, let's say, a new drug for rheumatoid arthritis, you might try it out on mice first, and there are genetically modified mice that get rheumatoid arthritis if they're exposed to the right compounds. 
And so you set up your experiment, you induce rheumatoid arthritis in the mice, uh, you inflict pain and suffering on the mice, and then you recover the mice with, with the drug. And you see, so you do a, you do an experiment where you give half of the mice at random the drug and half of an inert placebo. Well, that's not going to help humans. In fact, one of the criticisms of animal research is that how many times have we cured cancer in mice, right? And where are we with, with uh, cancer in humans? Uh, so that's the stage of translational research. Uh, the, 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 to, to take then the information that we know from animal models and bring it into a clinical trial. And there, there, there's phases of clinical trial, phase one, two, and three, and so on, uh, for randomized clinical trials. But then also, how do you translate the results of a clinical trial back to changes in, in, in the practice of medicine or public health policy? That's basically translational medicine focuses on those transition points. And how do you do that well? And because to me, that's the, those are the moving parts. We know how to do randomized clinical trials. We know how to do animal studies. We know how to market things, right? We know how to set up a company and put, put you know, uh, an initial public offering. We know those. Those are mechanic. But how do we have successes in translational research in, in, a, in an era in which there's so much pressure for, you know, Publish or perish doesn't really exist at biomedical institutions anymore. It's get grant funding or perish. They barely care if you publish. They would look at your CV, but they don't care if you teach. Um, a lot of uh, uh, MDs that are researchers, uh, MD, PhDs, they might do a lecture or a semester, and that, that satisfies their teaching requirement. Um, but you know, at the university, I was very focused on the ethics of research, ethics of science. I, I taught a, 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 and developed and taught a course on on, on the design of of uh, uh, biomedical research, uh, just to make sure that that was going well in the community I was working in. Um, also, um, I would have you know clinicians come and attend my classes so that they would learn the principles and practices of ethical meaningful biomedical research design. Um, and so the book, Cures Versus Profits, there's this tension that exists between the drive for profit and to bring forward the best medical biomedical practice. The best biomedical, the most effective biomedical practice is not always the most profitable. And I saw that, you know, a little bit in, in 2014. I became more aware of that when I was writing the book. And so the purpose of my book was actually to um, in, in 18, uh, sorry, 16 or 17 different topics, explore this tension in the balance and where it went right and where it went wrong. And I ended up writing kind of a, a profile of the bad actors in biomedical research and what they're like in terms of their individual uh, uh, characters and the good actors and, and what an ethical biomedical researcher looks like. Um, and I thought I was done with the book. Uh, I sent the book off to the publisher, and they said, that's great. It's fantastic. Let's have another chapter, if you would. Um, and I said, well, I'll add a chapter on vaccines, because everyone knows it's the greatest success in biomedicine. Saved the vaccines have saved millions of lives. Uh, and so I thought, oh, I could do this in a week. And writing that chapter, I went into the entire book experience with a commitment to myself that if I found something that was... Uh, askew. I found something immoral. I, I found criminal activity. You know, in, in looking at science, if I saw fraud, I would put it in the book. I wasn't going to hide anything. I was going to remain objective. So when I came to vaccines, I came in quite naively. 
uh, it was a purely academic exercise for me to say, what is vaccine science all about? So going into that, because I think it's a great segue um, into, you know, the larger discussion today. So going into that, I mean, you know, obviously um, the, the previous 17 conditions, you were really looking at uh, things like safety, efficacy, um, you know, how widely they might be used. And then, of course, um, perhaps even drug markups, uh, you know, in terms of R&D costs, all that sort of stuff. So when you went in to look at the vaccine side of things, um, assuming here, and correct me if I'm wrong, you pretty much looked at the same sort of things, right? So, so where are the safety studies, the efficacy, um, et cetera? And, and I don't know, you take it from there and let me know what you found. Well, what I did was I sat down and I said, I'm going to write the, the definitive chapter on vaccines because I, I hold myself to a high standard, right? Like this is the, this was going to be a party. It was going to be a success, you know, slam dunk, no problem. And I, I found myself writing the first half of the chapter sounding just like everything that you ever read about vaccines. They save millions of lives. They're safe and effective. Um, and then I remembered there was some question about autism. And this was before the press started talking about Andrew, Andrew Wakefield every day. Whenever they mention a vaccine, they now put in something about Andrew Wakefield. Um, and I think they've discovered that that's backfiring on them. So they tend not to do that anymore. Uh, but for a while there, I think it was maybe a reaction to, you know, my publications and so on. I don't know. But um, and certainly a reaction to Vax the movie, uh, uh, the documentary. Um, I, I put the book down, I put the chapter down and, and thought about it. And I said, well, I really don't know the whole story. I have to go look and see what happened, where, what became of Dr. Wakefield. And in researching what became of Dr. Wakefield and then doing a little bit more research online, I came across the um, transcripts and the audio of Dr. Brian Hooker interviewing William Thompson. And... I listened to the entire, all of it. I listened to the beginning to end before I wrote another word. And there were some very, very serious allegations that Dr. Thompson were making, uh, certainly about the 2004 DiStefano et al. study of on-time MMR vaccine and autism, that they buried the results there. They didn't bring them to the IOM. And that, that was disturbing enough. But that was just one study. And that could be, as one study, potentially attributed to professional differences of opinion Maybe Dr. Thompson lost the argument with his fellow scientists on how to interpret the results, right? And, and it was a subgroup analysis, and those are not reliable. And okay, fine. Uh, my life, my chapter, everything would be completely different if that's all he said. But the more important thing, the most important thing that he revealed to Dr. Hooker was that every vaccine safety science study that was done or, con or funded by the CDC, every last one of them, went through a sanitation committee, a committee that would take the results. If the results showed something negative about a vaccine, they would weaken it. They would winnow, winnow away the language. They would lessen the severity of the impact on the impression of the reader that there was some problem with the vaccines. And that's not science. That's putting policy before science. That's put propaganda. That's bias. And if you could imagine if you're a corporation, and you have a blockbuster drug that if you had a committee that said anything that's negative about this blockbuster drug, we can't publish anything about it. We're not allowed to publish it. If you contract to a corporation, they'll make you sign something that says you're only going to publish results that we want you to publish. I would never take a dime under those circumstances to do research. Anytime I do research, I publish the results. If it's negative or positive, it's, 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 uh, uh, that's, that's what science is for. Objectivity. 
um, my my master's thesis advisor at Ohio State University, I came to him with a question about what if um, what if we test this hypothesis and it's, and we're wrong? And he said that his advisor gave him the following response to the same question: Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because what that really means is that you're doing science and you've learned something, right? And well, so. Yeah, and I think this is just, you know, an important point to interject here is we hear all the time that the science is settled. You know, this is just like a mantra that's been pushed um, out in, into the, the public space. But, you know, um, science, as far as I'm concerned, is always evolving, right? The science is never settled on anything. You, you know, I mean, if we just decided at some point in time that we all thought the earth was flat and we said, okay, that's it. We're never going to look into that a little bit more. Um, ever again, well, then we would all still be walking around. I know some people do believe the Earth is flat. Maybe it's a bad example. Well, well no, it's what a I'm great example because I hear that the Flat Earth Society now has members all around the globe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> <they're> spreading. <laughs> it so. is. It is. But, but you know, um, in all seriousness, though, for what I'm hearing from you is that, it, you know, so, the, the role of science is to question things and to discover new things, and if they, if we were, if we are doing things that are not done to the best of their ability or possibilities or capabilities or potential, we should be changing tack accordingly, and we should be looking into things further. And you, you know, um, I was reading through your your transcripts from a, a talk that you did in, in New Brunswick. It was a, a short presentation you did, and one of the things that struck me was, you know, and I want to sort of get this out there for our listeners. Is correct me if I'm wrong, but did you look at 2,000 studies? Was am I getting that right? Yeah. So for the environmental and the genetic causes of autism book, uh, after I wrote the chapter on vaccines, I, and there were, I found that there were four major controversies on vaccines. Uh, one of them being the Bill Thompson story. The other one being a case in Pennsylvania where Merck was accused by two whistleblowers of actually spiking human samples with rabbit antibodies to fool the FDA into thinking that the mumps portion of the MMR uh, was more effective than it actually was because they had to reach a 95% efficacy uh, to keep their contract. That, co that court case is still pending, a, a ruling. Um, last I knew they were in discovery, but it's been a number of years now. Um, you know, the thought occurred to me that, you know, although Bill Thompson said all the vaccine safety studies are sanitized. And I, the, the next step that I did is I went to those vaccine safety studies and I downloaded them and I saw the evidence of the bias in the studies. So how, how many these, studies were there that you looked at just well, out of interest? Well, the, these are the general vaccine safety studies. There were, um, that, they, that they mentioned, there were about 46 or, or so that I eventually did a thorough evaluation on. This is after the uh, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, wrote a letter and had 800 other organizations sign the letter to Donald Trump saying that thimerosal is safe in vaccines and that vaccines don't cause autism. I evaluated every one of those studies with an objective evaluation scoring system. So was the sample size, that is the number of patients that were included in the study, large enough that if you didn't find an association with a negative adverse event, that you would re that that negative result, the null result, would be reliably due to the fact that there is no null result and not a trivial result simply because you designed the study with such a small sample size. And I found one study 
that the IOM relied on out of five. They relied on five studies. They didn't rely on 46. They relied on five. When they when the IOM um, committee director Barbara um, McCormick came out and said that the committee has decided the vaccines don't cause autism, she actually misspoke for that. See, the IOM was 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 contracted by the government uh, uh, to review causality of vaccines and to see if the vaccine safety science, if this if the literature supported causality of rheumatoid arthritis, other autoimmunity, autism, and so on. When it came to autism, the first time they did it, they, they, they did the report, they said there's not enough evidence. The second time they did the report, they said there's not enough evidence. The third time they did the report, they said there's not enough evidence to sh whether vaccines cause autism or don't cause autism. But then the, the committee chairman, uh, Barbara uh, McCormick, held a press conference and she said, no, we, we, we decided that vaccines don't cause autism. But what had happened was in the second meeting that the IOM held was uh, they reviewed the literature and they found 22 studies. Um, they rejected 17 out of 22 studies as being flawed. Hmm. Okay, so they, they relied on five. Uh, and the, two of those studies that they relied on actually were the same data analyzed twice by the same team. So they relied on four data sets. One of the data sets had 196 versus uh, 96, 198 versus 96 patients who were vaccinated uh, um, or who had autism or didn't have autism. I forget the details, but it was a, it was a Polish study. At 196, 198 versus 96, you have less than one biological case of autism at the rates that were in the country at that time. So the study was nonsense. There was no reason that they would ever expect to be able to find a significant association between that uh, between the MMR vaccine and autism. I mean, the first thing I did, the very first thing I did uh, before I went into this analysis was I, I went to the statement to the CDC website that where they say vaccines do not cause autism. The vaccines being plural, I went and I searched the literature for all the studies for all the vaccines showing that all the vaccines don't cause autism. I did my own IOM thing. Right. And all I found was a few on a pertussis vaccination, the DTaP, uh, and I found uh, some on MMR. I didn't find any for hep well. I found one for hepatitis B by Goodman and Gallagher. They actually found a three three point seven three uh, point seven percent three point seven percent increase. Sorry, a three point seven fold increase in the risk of autism if you get the hepatitis B when it contains thimerosal. That's huge. Mm. The yeah. CDC didn't cite that. The CDC never cited that study. So I, I went to all of this, all the literature on vaccines and autism, um, and I found that not all vaccines have been tested. So why is there an S at the end of that word on the CDC website where it says vaccines don't cause autism? They're just making it up. How do you generalize that the, that all vaccines don't cause autism because you know, you did crappy science, excuse my language, but you, oh, did, that's crappy, okay. <laughs> you did crappy science on um, uh, MMR vaccine and some crappy science on the, the DTaP vaccine. And what does that have to do with any other pediatric vaccine? It really confused me. But nevertheless, when Bill Thompson said what he said about all vaccine safety studies were filtered and sanitized, even then... I said, well, maybe there's a possibility that this one study found something positive. They just kind of like cleared it up. And the other studies, uh, they're, yes, they're relying on correlation 
studies which don't test causality. They're relying on association studies that, that that's not a, a, a test of causality. You have to do a randomized prospective clinical trial. So all of their vaccine safety science is not what they representing it as. But nevertheless, maybe vaccines still don't cause autism. I was still skeptical. So mm-hmm. I, knowing what I know about biological pathways, because I studied in cancer and I studied neurodevelopment and I studied immunology, uh, and, I, and I was in on studies on the mechanisms of disease or pathophysiology of immune, in, 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 uh, autoimmune disorders, um, independent of vaccines. I, I had looked at the genomics and proteomics and the genetics. Uh, and that was my job at the University of Pittsburgh, where I was the director of the, uh, the university's bioinformatics analysis core. And we did over 100 research studies where I designed the studies and analyzed it. Ha- knowing these biological pathways as well as I do, and the causes of disease and so on, I decided to go and, and write another book on autism. It wasn't about vaccines. I had downloaded a thousand studies on autism and I read them. And from those studies, I found other references. I came up with a series of, cha- uh, a, a sketch of an outline of a book for a series of, of chapters on vaccines. I'm sorry, on autism. Um, and then I read the second thousand studies and I had to completely restructure the 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 chapters to reflect what the whole bolus of, you know, scientific knowledge, uh, the bolus of scientific literature uh, was. I ended up in the end, I ended up downloading 3,000 studies and I can say that I read wow. 1,000, but the book only cites, i sorry, I, I can say that I read 2,000, but the book only cites 1,000 because my publisher wanted a book that was 50,000 words. I sent him a manuscript of 100,000 words. Wow. And I had to edit it down to 50,000. And that's that's where that book came from. Um, that's uh, you, you, you guys don't have video on your thing, but that's where this book came from. Yeah, I'll you, put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, thank you. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very proud of this as I think it's a definitive opus on, on autism. It's not, you know, it cites the genetic studies. It, it complains that the genetic studies don't test environmental factors. You know, it shows that you, you know, but even then I wasn't, I wasn't really happy with understanding what autism is, but I did find that there's insufficient evidence to say that vaccines do not cause autism, but there's plenty of evidence that shows how vaccines could cause autism. And that's when I came up with my, after I published the book, I came up with a theory called um, uh, the ER hyperstress theory of autism. This is a little technical, but in all of our cells, we have a compartment called the endoplasmic reticulum. Mm-hmm. You remember it from 10th grade biology, I'm sure. Ninth grade I, biology. I was teaching about it for quite some time, so I'm, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> okay, great. So the endoplasmic reticulum is the location where the ribosomes on the membrane actually where protein synthesis takes place, right? The, the RNA comes off of the DNA, it gets transported out to the ribosome, and through the process called translation, we get these proteins. Well, what people don't know is about a third of our proteins have to be folded with energy. It takes energy. They need help folding because they're in their native conformation. They're not in a stable configuration and they, they're not in their functional configuration. So you have to have enzymes. Your cell has to do work to fold them. And that happens in the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. And there's something called ER stress where... Um, you get uh, your lumen fills up with unfolded proteins. These unfolded proteins gum up the works, if you will, of the cell. Nothing else can really happen 
And so the cell has to either slow down the rate of transcription of RNA from the DNA, or it has to slow down the rate of translation. Uh, the third option that a cell has is to die uh, the, hmm. through apoptosis. And this happens all the time. See, we have, uh, this, the, we have one copy of most of our genes from mom and one copy of most of our genes from dad. In the case of the Y chromosome, obviously we don't have two copies of all the genes. But um, most of the time, what would happen would be you basically have cell selection for the cells that are, ex are expressing working copies of your proteins. It's, for, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant design, if you will. I'm, uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist, but natural selection did a fantastic job uh, in bringing about diploidy, uh, having two copies of, of both types of genes in your cells, because you basically have redundancy. You've got backup, right? It's why, it's why planes have two fuel tanks in case you get a leak in one and everything else. So we've got this genetic redundancy, and most of the time, you have genetic variation that causes a kink in a protein that leads to ER stress. That's genetic ER stress. It's not a problem because you maybe have one or two proteins you know, that might be doing that, um, and the cells die, and that's fine. But then if you have another source of ER stress, like aluminum or mm -hmm. mercury or other chemicals that cause ER stress. There's a ton. There's a whole list of them. We know Glyphosate, I'm sure, as well. Roundup, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then you have uh, the genetic ER stress, and you have the environmental ER stress mm. causing ER hyperstress. And what then happens, Brett, is that um, the cells die, and they release these strange unfolded proteins. And that's what we see in autism. We see that the the serum of children in autism have hundreds of weirdly shaped proteins, and nobody knows why. There's such a strong signal there that the person that studied this came up with a, that she proposed that it should be used for diagnosis. It's so clear cut. Wow. But if you have your stream, your body's just filled with these strangely folded proteins that have nothing to, they shouldn't be there. Um, it's because your cells are dying. There's so much cell death in the brain or in the wherever, wherever the mm -hmm. aluminum is, wherever mm -hmm. the mercury is. Um, so anyway, the uh, when they spill out these unfolded proteins. They, they, they look foreign to the body, so you get inflammation because the immune system reacts to them as if they don't belong there because they don't belong there. But the other thing that happens is that the cells also, when they die, they spill out their mercury and they spill out the aluminum. And the aluminum and the mercury are usually attached to some part of the cell that is fragmented through apoptosis. You can also not just have apoptosis, you can also have cell necrosis. That's another way for cells to die, where you're basically seeping out these weird proteins, and the cell's definitely on the way out. Both of those things are happening. You end up with a, a serum filled with unfolded proteins that look weird, and you have basically released your aluminum back into the interstitium. Hmm. And, and that aluminum then recirculates, and it gets picked up by other cells. Aluminum is a cellular toxin. It will definitely kill any cell that it gets to. It's, it's, there's no biological pathway that uses aluminum as a nutrient, and there's no biological organism that relies on aluminum in any way. It was all for the 3.8 billion years of organic evolution, uh, uh, biological evolution on the planet Earth, um, aluminum was caught up with silica in bauxite Right. until the 1800s when we mined it out and we found a way to purify it. And it, the reason why we're using aluminum in vaccines is because when uh, President, in the U.S. anyway, the um, President Nixon, when they were creating the um, FDA, they came up with a list of substances that are generally regarded as safe. That's actually a classification, G-R-A-S. Yeah, grass, oh, yeah. And, and aluminum was one of them. 
because it was in baking powder and it was used in food and there was no obvious immediate toxicity. But you, everyone will remember that there was a time when everybody threw away their aluminum pots because there was concern over Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so on from aluminum. Aluminum is a known neurotoxin. There's no two ways about it. The science shows that it's absolutely a neurotoxin. Aluminum causes ER stress. Uh, mercury causes ER stress. So if you get your flu shot and you get ER stress from your flu shot and you get your aluminum ER stress and you happen to have ER stress from genetics, then you're at triple risk of having something go wrong. And what, what that something is depends on what proteins are misfolding and what organs are, are those proteins being expressed in, what tissues. So vaccine-induced ER hyperstress exists in many different people in many different tissues, but it's heterogeneous across the board. So I, I estimate maybe 25% of humanity has a problem with the vaccine schedule because there's so much aluminum, but it's yeah. all in different ways. It's yeah. all in different medical categories. Yeah. Well, um, wow. So first of all, that just blew my mind right there. Um, so thank you for that. That was great. Uh, a couple of things that I would um, sort of add to that, um, at, just for our listeners' sake as well. You know, I did a great podcast with Professor Chris Exley, who you might know as um, sort of Mr. Aluminum. And, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, um, in his studies and the research that he's done, he's shown that autistic, um, you know, cadavers have uh, aluminum in the brain that is the highest that we've ever seen. You know, higher than Alzheimer's, higher than any other um, patients in in the world. And then when you couple that with a vaccine schedule that's ramped up significantly over the last twenty years, um, you know, well, there we go. Because where are three year olds? You know, where is that exposure coming from? Do they just happen to be cooking excessively with aluminum pans or playing with aluminum toys or chewing on beer cans? Or where is it coming from, right? Now, the other thing that I would um, add to this as well, and, and I read this in some of your work, um, and I think it's an important distinction to make, is when we've done the safety studies on aluminum, you know, you mentioned grass, that certification, um, there's a big difference between the oral ingestion of aluminum versus um, getting injected with aluminum. Um, perhaps you can elaborate on that for us. Absolutely. So uh, one of our peer-reviewed studies that we published out of IPAC, um, the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, was uh, a, a, an evaluation of the question, how did the FDA come to determine that 850 micrograms of aluminum is safe for an adult? Uh, we looked around in the literature, we studied the entire provenance of the logic that was used to get to what's called the MITKIS study. The MITKIS study was a study that uh, argued that aluminum and vaccines are safe Basically, they used a math hat trick where they said there are three main compartments where aluminum is sequestered, the bones being the, the number one. So we'll take the total dose and we'll divide it by three. And then we'll divide the, the dose because it's long-term held in these organs. We'll divide it by 365. That's hmm. how they determined their daily exposure from ingested aluminum. Now, the, the, their determination that 850 micrograms of aluminum was safe was partly based on, on these dietary studies. They, 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 there were plenty of studies out there where you're looking at the safety of ingested aluminum because of the concern that there might be a problem. 
And they, they cited one study by Cole of it all, where they said that this one study showed that there was no adverse events at a dose that they thought would be reflective of ultimate So they relied on one study? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, it's a Cole of it all study. Wow, wow. And, and, and it was ingested aluminum in adult mice. So right there, um, we have mice versus humans. That's one confounder, right? We have ingested versus injected. They're different forms of aluminum. That's another confounder. And we have adult mice versus infant humans. There's three major confounders there. And so it's absolutely ludicrous. Uh, what we did is we calculated in the first pa paper that we did on aluminum, we calculated what would be a safe dose. Let's Okay, all that aside, let's say that the FDA somehow is right that 850 micrograms is safe for, for vaccines and that, you know, you know, this kind of tongue in cheek, we doubt it. But if it is, and given that there's no pediatric safe dose limit published anywhere, what would a pediatric safe dose limit for a vaccine look like if we used something called Clark's rule? Because if you're going to give a drug to a child and it's only been studied in clinical trials for an adult, you modify the dose based on body weight. Mm -hmm. And we found that the potential minimum safe level or sorry maximum safe level of uh aluminum per day uh for children was 14 micrograms wow and on the first for for at, at birth seven seven and a half pounds or 3.3 kilograms and at birth a 3.3 kilogram male infant receives 250 micrograms so wow. there's no consideration for body weight. There's no consideration for duration of exposure. You're supposed to do toxicity studies based on kilograms per, you know, micrograms per kilogram per day or whatever the dose is. Um, and more recently, we revisited this question. There's a manuscript that we have in review right now. Well, the first manuscript was a, 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 a death knell for any assumption that, that we were doing any, that, with, that the safety of vaccines on the first day of life uh, safety of aluminum-containing vaccines is founded on science. It's that that's a dead issue. No one's critiqued the study. We sent it to the FDA. They're now testing other adjuvants. We know they're doing. We call for dose escalation studies where they actually take animals and they inject uh, aluminum in increasing doses. That's what you're supposed to do in infant mice. Uh, the FDA now is exploring um, other adjuvants for vaccines, but they're doing it in adult mice, not infant mice. So that's still going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so our second study, which we just submitted for peer review last month, um, actually did a different calculation where we now say, okay, if we have this curve of the minimum safe level related to body weight with that we derived, um, given that we know the accumulation, we have the model, a mathematical model for studying the accumulation and clearance of aluminum from priest. We can calculate the number of days in the first two years of life or the number of days in the first seven months of life that an infant is in what we would consider aluminum toxicity. And it turns out, and we compared three different schedules. We compared Paul Thomas's schedule as a vaccine safety plan where he drops, he substitutes aluminum-containing vaccines for non-aluminum-containing alternatives, and he drops out some vaccines because he thinks that they're futile, like the chickenpox vaccine. Um, and then we came up with the, uh, the we we we, we um, uh, compared it to the CDC schedule, and we did a third schedule that was kind of made up. It's a hypothetical schedule that we just substitute the aluminum-containing vaccines, but we do a full vaccination uh, according to CDC schedule. 
And we found that in the first seven months of life, infants are spend 75% of their days in aluminum toxicity. Wow. Wow. And is, is, there, is, is, is there no way that they can excrete this? Like, is, is aluminum very difficult to excrete from the body? I have no idea because the science has not been done. I know Chris Exley has done has done some studies for adults, yeah. where in, in adults you you're actually exposed. You know, uh, have somebody drink a glass of water that's full of aluminum, and then you give them silica. You know, you expose them to silica, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 the silica binds and helps remove it. Um, but in infants, you know, a newborn infant has maybe twenty percent of the glomular filtration rate of an adult. Exactly. So all the, yeah. all the clearance estimates that we have are based on adult clearance rates. We we have and, and the pre study that we based our model on is based on adult exposure. Wow. So basically, we we don't know whether we don't know what the detoxification rate is in children at all. We have no idea. Right. Um, you know that that I mean that to me is is. Um, it is quite obvious. I mean, we know that things like the immune system, uh, liver, kidneys, etc. You know, they take a while from birth to become fully functional. We we know that from a general standpoint. But I think what's shocking to me is that, you know, obviously we'll talk about general safety, and we're going to get into mandates in just a second. But you know, the 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 combination of all of these things, I think, should really. Get, people should really like perk up and pay attention to this, especially listeners listening to this. You know, simply put, what we're saying is a ramped up vaccination schedule. We're saying that there are no um, studies. You know, studies have not been done on detoxification in infants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when you now group that together with these genetic issues that you're talking about and this ER hyper stress, you know, the 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 question that I have, right? Like looking at all of this is we now want to push forward with mandatory vaccinations. You know, and we've only spoken about aluminum. Like we haven't even spoken about mercury. We haven't even spoken about anything else. Right. Like that to me is just absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, so let, let me reaffirm. So there's any listener that happens to be aware of the scientific studies of clearance that is objecting to our claim that we know nothing about the clearance, um, as they did with mercury, they're, they have done with aluminum the studies that show, oh, aluminum clears from the serum, most of it, 70-something percent, within 24 hours. And aluminum clearing from the serum is meaningless. Uh, we know from old studies that serum levels of aluminum clearance and urine levels of aluminum clearance do not tell us that it's free from the body. And this is part of the reason why they took bimerosol out of vaccines in the first place. It's 50% ethylmercury by weight. There were studies that showed that the, the, the infants were getting a huge, huge percentage more daily exposure uh, to ethylmercury than the EPA allowed them to ingest. Well, oh, aluminum, wow. <laughs> when, when you feed a mouse or a human aluminum, 0.3% gets into the, the bloodstream, you know, the serum. I call that being metabolically available where the body has to do something with it. But if you inject aluminum, the full dose gets in. And so, so it's 100%, talking, right? Like 100%. you're talking 100 versus 0.3. Right. And it, and the literature is confusing on, it's, there's a semantic use of the word absorption. Like, okay, you inject it, how much is absorbed? It doesn't matter to me. Well, 100% has to be dealt with by the body some way. So it's mm -hmm. metabolically available. Well, the, the, the literature on aluminum talks, talks uh, 
what you call detoxification clearance has not been done, but the aluminum clearance in serum, they call it about systematically available. But that doesn't mm. matter to me at all. Clearing from the serum is actually a bad thing because clearing from the serum and not showing up in the urine means it's going into the brain, it's going into the bones, it's going into the liver, it's going into the kidneys, right. it's going into right. these organs that the, that the individuals need to detoxify. It's actually causing cell death in those very organs. And so it's, it's a systemic, whole body-wide toxin. It's killing macrophages. Wow. Macrophages are picking it up and transporting it. When you mentioned Chris Exley, um, I, I don't know why he got the moniker Mr. Aluminum. He really should be called Dr. Aluminum, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's Dr. Chris Exley. But, you know, he actually found a study, and he actually did a study that um, showed that he caught macro, he and his team caught macrophages crossing the blood-brain barrier that were lo loaded with aluminum. So it, it, you, you caught the macro, if you catch the macrophages red-handed, there's no argument to blood-brain barrier. So you brought up mercury. We're not talking about it yet. There's very solid studies that show that mercury and aluminum are synergistically toxic. They in enhance each other's toxicity. There's very good studies that show that fluoride and aluminum are synergistically toxic. We can argue and debate about the form of aluminum, but in reality, if you have aluminum salts of any kind, they dissolve and they're bioactive. The, the sodium fluoride that was done in the study, you know, we, we can argue about the forms of the chemicals, and that's important. But nevertheless, the synergistic toxicity, you know, and I just learned about coming to Canada uh, and, and educating the, the committee, getting a chance to educate them on the science that I know. Um, uh, and I say that humbly, I don't say that with any arrogance, but I just learned that not all the provinces in Canada flora, fluoridate their water. Yeah and, yeah. and and so what I'd like to do is get, I'd like to, I know, I'd like to look at the, the rates of autism um, across across the provinces and see if there's a difference in the rates of autism uh, with fluoridation through maybe due to synergistic toxicity. It's an interesting yeah. hypothesis. If yeah. you don't find it, then we'll, you know, still publish a negative result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think again, you know, this um, really, I'll, I'll just say it again, it, it does come back to this compounded vaccine schedule, you know, that is very different from um, the seventies, the sixties and, and previous, you know, because you do have a large body of the population that will say, look, we all got vaccinated, you know, we're 60, 70, 80 years old, nothing happened to us, but times have changed, you know, things, things have changed a lot um, uh, from that standpoint. Um, the, the one thing I do want to just, um, I want to sort of move us along a little bit, uh, just in the conversation, because, you know, we spoke a lot about um, safety. I spoke a lot about that with Del Bigtree on, on the show as well. But we didn't really speak too much about efficacy. And I know that that is, um, you know, safe and effective, right? So safe, I think we've sort of covered a lot of ground there. But effective, I think, is an interesting conversation as well, because um, most people haven't really delve too deep into that. Do, do you know what I mean? It's usually the safety conversation that's front and center, but um, you've done a lot of research into efficacy and perhaps we can sort of unpack that a little bit, you know, things like uh, vaccine waning, um, you know, efficacy is waning, uh, they lose their potency, et cetera. So, so I, I don't know where you want to start with that, but um, I'll just let you go for it. Well, the first thing I'll say is that the MMR came out in the market in the early 1960s, and the girl, the little girl who the, the virus was actually isolated from is now in her 70s, right? So if she's aged and her proteins have changed, 
you know, the, vi the my point is that the virus that's in the wild for the mumps or the measles has been evolving and changing now for 60 years, right? And um, it, it, ever since we first, you know, trying to, to do mass vaccination. And um, that 60-year-old time period is actually doubled because the vaccine type is also mutating and evolving in different ways than the wild type. Every week that goes by, there's a chance for new mutations, right? And actually, when you propagate the virus in the lab, there's a phenomenon known where the virus will adapt to the laboratory conditions that you put it in to propagate it. Wow. So there's actually selection. That's not just baseline mutation, but there's actually selection. And so these two types of vaccine the viruses are evolving away from each other. Um, and the mutation rates are known. I'm an evolutionary biologist. The baseline mutation rates without selection are known um, for all the pathogens that are in vaccines. So I've done calculations to try to see, okay, with any reasonable assumption for the immunogenetic epitopes that are in the proteins encoded by the viral uh, genome, uh, how many uh, vaccines that are on the CDC schedule actually have more than 5% of the uh, amino acids being impacted. Another way to say it is more than 5% of the epitopes being impacted in a way that would change the amino acid and perhaps change the efficacy of the the match of the wild type to the vaccine and vice right. versa so 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 just um because i know that that's like super technical so for listeners what does that sort of mean if we had to dumb it down a little bit in plain english right okay from from what i'm understanding we obviously have viruses out there um you know perhaps we'll touch on hpv a little bit um at some point you yeah. know where we've got multiple strains right and they're mutating out in the wild but then the the strains in the lab are also and the vaccines are also mutating? Absolutely. That's the, of, of every, every cell line in every laboratory, whether it's an animal cell line, a plant, a plant propagation, or a virus is evolving, every one of them. There's mutations that happen through cosmic rays, through random errors of failure of the DNA replication process. But the, the simplest way to put this, I guess, would be that in 1950s, there was a paper that was published that said, if you do whole population measles vaccination around the year 2022, you're going to see vaccine failure where the vaccine is no longer working <laughs> unless you update the, the, the type of virus that's included in the measles vaccine every year like you do with the flu. And have we done that? No. Okay, so what, what, have we updated it at all? Or, or like at what point did we stop updating or, or is that just not even a feature? No, there, there was one update. I forget the, the actual technical strains that it was updated. There was one update, um, but uh, it, 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 the, we're now seeing, starting to see this effect. And so uh, in the absence of updating it every year and the prediction that it's going to start failing, what do we see? We see outbreaks of measles in highly vaccinated populations. So 38% of the measles cases in Disneyland in 2014, which started this whole problem, oh my gosh, we've got this outbreak of measles cases in Disneyland, turned out to be breakthrough uh, infections of measles vaccine type virus in individuals who had been vaccinated. 38% were vaccinated people who got a diagnosis of measles because they were vaccinated. Right. So so what, I, what I've heard from that, and perhaps you can um, elaborate on this a little bit, are we talking about people 
getting measles with the strains that they've been vaccinated with? Yes. Is, is, is that's what we're talking about? Well, that's, okay. that's a measles-like rash, okay? And then you also have breakthrough infections where the vaccine does not protect you anymore and you still get measles. 38% of the people in Disneyland that, that are, are associated with that outbreak had measles vaccine type. It is unknown what percentage of the rest of the population were also vaccinated that got the measles anyway. But if we look at measles, that's one thing. You know, there's definitely asymptomatic transmission where you could have a... Uh, you can have a, a vaccinated person, they, they, they get an infection. You don't know they have an infection because the vaccine weakens the symptoms and they right. can transmit it. There's scientists that will, will pull their hair out and say, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But I've actually read, read the literature. The Japanese have cases of uh, measles, uh, uh, asymptomatic transmission in vaccinated people. Um, and, and we know about this. And so in pertussis, this is an interesting situation because of the baboon study uh, where they vaccinated a bunch of baboons and they didn't vaccinate other baboons and, you know, they held them in the same physical location. The baboons that were vaccinated got the pertussis infection, wild type. They passed the wild type onto the unvaccinated. There's absolutely no doubt that asymptomatic transmission is real. Dr. James Cherry calls that vaccine failure. Um, is is this shedding? Is, is this what, what people would call this a shedding? Not, okay, so let's be clear that they're not shedding the virus. They're not just not the virus as a bacterium. They're not shedding the vaccine in pertussis. They get the wild type infection and pass it on. It's asymptomatic transmission. Okay. And so what does that mean for our current health policies and biomedical practice, right? Remember where I came from in terms of optimizing biomedical practice or translational research. It means that every pediatrician and every nurse and every physician that handles or is around children who are at risk of dying for pertussis at a young age because it constricts their throat, they get vaccinated every 10 years. They're exposed to the population who have wild-type pertussis. They should all be wearing masks every time they're near a child because they are the reservoir they are part of the reservoir. If we're going to fight infectious disease, then the biomedical professionals need to own up to the fact that they may be transmitting pertussis. They should be wow. jabbed. <laughs> they should be jabbed every week on Monday morning when they show up for work, and they should wait until the results of the test before they see anybody. And if the test says that they're positive, they need to get a course of antibiotics and go home. This is this wow. is the reality of vaccine failure in 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 in, in the world. Um, and more recently, we just saw a study um, on rotavirus in a highly vaccinated population. The vaccine against rotavirus is absolutely useless and actually resulted in an increase in the circulation of rotavirus in that population. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no change in transmission, if not an increase in the transmission of rotavirus. And so, you know, when we're looking at efficacy, all right, so it will, HPV vaccine absolutely does clear the four or nine strains, depending on which one you get. In the U.S., it's we're only licensed for the nine now, but uh, or at least they're not using the four. HPV Gardasil 9 does clear those types of HPV from people, that, you know, and, and, and they, they, don't, they no longer have that type. Um, it prevents transmission, viremia, I should say. It prevents viremia because the immune system... Um, uh, defeats the virus, but there's over 120 other types of HPV that come in. Exactly. 
Yeah. And so it's it's not really vaccine failure, but it's vaccine irrelevance. And it's actually potentially one of my grave concerns over the HPV vaccination program and why I sued the Allegheny County Board of Health after they recommended HPV vaccine for all children going to school any age in all counties uh, was because the doctors give the, the, the teens or young adults, I guess, uh, HPV vaccine. And then they say, you are now protected against HPV. So what happens then is that the children feel or the, the young adults feel empowered to have unprotected sex. Um, and the rarer types of HPV that are out there circulating, they're definitely at risk of those. And when, they, when those rarer types come into the population, they, they will increase in frequency mm-hmm. because they're, the population's unprotected from those rarer types. As an evolutionary biologist, I'm concerned that we're increasing the frequency of rare types of viruses. And if you think about it for a moment, why is a virus rare? A virus is rare because it's more deadly compared mm. to a common virus. The common cold doesn't kill anyone. It's very common. It's called the common cold. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But HPV types that are rare, that are more deadly, may sweep into the population and replace the other types of, of vaccine-targeted HPV. That's called type replacement. Uh, there are studies across the world that have shown type replacement is happening. Type replacement is absolutely happening in HPV. There's one study by Markowitz et al. from the CDC where they did the data analysis in a very unorthodox manner. Rather than look in the question of the vaccine-targeted types decreasing with vaccine, yes. Are the non-vaccine-targeted types increasing as a set? The answer is yes. That I, I had to reanalyze their data to show that. Um, they, they looked at it where they said, for each individual type, can we detect a statistical significance of, of an increase in each individual type, which weakens the power of the test? I wrote to them about it. I said that their study was flawed. I urged them to send in a, a notice to the journal that said, yes, our interpretation is flawed. Um, the, the results are published uh, in a book by Mary Holland and Kim Mac Rosenberg and Eileen Iorio called HPV Vaccine on Trial, where my reanalysis, which is also available on the web, shows clearly the, the rare types of HPV are increasing. And then on top of that, Brett, if you look at the rates of cervical cancer in the populations that have adopted the HPV vaccine, the rates of cervical cancer are increasing, not decreasing. Hmm. The rates of STDs of all types in the United States are through the roof because kids are being told you're, you're protection from HPV. Now, this, people want to criticize, in the past, they would criticize and say, oh, you're saying that the vaccine turns girls into loose women or something. It's not just girls, it's boys as well. And so if a doctor tells you you're protected from an STD and you're a kid and you know nothing, and then, you know, the temptation is there, somebody offers you unprotected sex, you're more likely to to consent. Yeah, especially if, you know, a social setting, you've had a couple of drinks, you know, guard is down kind of thing. Um, But, but, you know, one one thing I want to touch on here as well, um, and perhaps we'll sort of, you know, speak about this a bit more. Um, it's my understanding that from HPV anyway, the Gardasil vaccine, it, it, it only lasts for five years. Is, is, is that, am I speaking out of turn? And then when you look at when women are getting cervical cancer, it's much later in life. So there's this huge gap in terms of, you know, unless you're getting booster shots every five years, which no one is doing, you know, essentially are we talking about 
really having very short term, you know, a five year um, protected period from the vaccine. And then after that, it's just there's nothing there anymore. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm putting that in lay terms, but perhaps you can get into that a little bit. Right. So the, the HPV vaccine itself, protecting against the nine types, um, it does have a short duration, uh, the durability, the, the, it wears off and that's waning, waning um, immunity. Waning immunity occurs in all vaccines that you need a booster for, as opposed to you know, lifetime immunity, say for measles, which is much more powerful form of immunity. Um, and uh, in the HPV case, uh, well over 97, 99%, I think, of cases of infection clear without any further issue. You don't get cervical lesions. You don't have a problem. So this and, is the innate immune system. This is your body just yeah. taking care of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. your body's just taking care of it. Okay. And, and um, the, the, the cervical cancer rates used to be in the 40s and 50s, right, of, of women that were infected. Right. But that age distribution is shifting because the viruses, I think, are more aggressive. Hmm. Seeing young girls get cervical cancer at the age of, you know, 22, 23. Wow. Um, and, you know, the, the public health policy should be adjusted so that every case of young cervical cancer is typed, genotyped, to determine which type of HPV is present. And this is going, and, it's, and it should be noted you know, our public health policy, uh, I'm sorry, our public health departments are not doing a good job. They should be required to report the measles genotype, is it the vaccine type, what percentage is the wild type, what wild type is it, does it match the vaccine or is the vaccine irrelevant? Um, I mean, this is kind of like kind of like the flu vaccine. I mean, they just literally just throw mud at the wall every year and are like, well, that should work. And I think, you know, on average, it's only 40% effective because they're guessing what strains. But uh, last year, you know, 20, 2018, um, it was only 10% effective, according to the CDC. Right. Um, so the science that I'm familiar with uh, is, is that the flu tells me that the flu vaccine is a self-defeating prospect. If you get the flu vaccine um, in one... In, in, in one year, your risk of getting non-respiratory virus infections uh, that are not non-influenza respiratory virus infections is increased for two years. Wow. So especially if you get the thimerosal-containing flu. Well, the reason for that, and this, I'm sorry this is very technical, but everybody should know that the, the protein ERAP1, tell your legislators to understand that you know that thimerosal inhibits a protein called ERAP1, that's E-R-A-P-1, uh, that ERAP1 protein actually is responsible for folding your immune system proteins that you need to fight off respiratory infections. And so, so it actually weakens your immune system in a sense. It weakens your immune system. And then on top of it, the public health policy mismatch is that they, they, they started counting all deaths from uh, respiratory virus infection without testing for the respiratory virus infection as flu. They call it flu syndrome <laughs> because they'll test you for flu, but they don't test for the other, vi the other viruses. And so we need to pass legislation uh, uh, that requires medical doctors to report the type of respiratory virus infection, and that health departments should be publishing the type of respiratory virus that's circulating in the population. It's ludicrous to continue to vaccinate when we know that we're harming the immune system. We know that there's an increased risk of other types of respiratory viruses after getting the flu vaccine. Uh, and then turn around and say, well, the answer to this is to get your flu vaccine. Right. I mean, th that, that to me is always just being Captain Obvious, where 
I'm like, okay, so we look at, and I'm just going to circle back a little bit to to some points you mentioned earlier, where you know you've got a naval ship where 100% vaccination rate because they wouldn't be allowed on the ship at all, um, mm-hmm. and they all get this. Of course, they didn't call it mumps; they called it something else. But we know that it's mumps, so they all right. got mumps. You they know, call they, it per- paroditis, which is the, mumps. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's they a didn't medical use term mumps. For mumps. Yeah, they didn't use mumps <laughs> in the uh, in the mainstream media at all. Right. Um, if you look at the outbreaks in uh, in New York, um, I think it was Rockford, Rockford or Rockwell. I'm not sure. I'm, I, I Rockland might, County. Rockland County. Thank you. Um, I think it was 75% or higher vaccination rates there as well. Same thing in LA County. Um, the pertussis outbreak recently in Santa Clarita in California, that every single person out of the 40 people who got whooping cough were all vaccinated. Right. So, so you know, one thing that you, um, and of course the answer is to get your shots, right? So a couple of things that I've read you say over and over is the fact that we, um, we cannot really prevent outbreaks, right? Um, right. Y- you know, especially you know that now that we've unpacked the whole situation here. Um, so, so perhaps, I mean, do you have anything more to say on that? Like when we say we can't prevent outbreaks, what does that really mean? First of all, yeah. and then um, I also know that you've done a little bit of work um, in reviewing unvaccinated versus vaccinated uh, populations. There was one particular study, I forget the name, um, where we, we've actually now had a chance to look at children that have been vaccinated versus unvaccinated. So perhaps you can kind of speak to those um, to, to those two points. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brett. So um, listen, the, 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 the story that we're told is that people that are coming from other countries that have measles... Um, virus, whether they have symptoms or not, come in and infect and they, the symptoms show up in the unvaccinated population. And that's why we get measles outbreaks. It, it, we have an influx of people coming from overseas or, or by air or whatever, uh, from the Ukraine, uh, from China, from Japan, wherever they're coming from, uh, Polynesia, we're not going to stop outbreaks because the vaccine's not protecting people anymore. You're going to see outbreaks no matter what we do. You can get 100% vaccination. You can get 120% vaccination. You're still gonna see instances of measles. And that's just part of our biomedical, we're always gonna see the common cold. You're always gonna see the flu. You're always, you know, we, we, we have to recognize, you're always gonna see broken arms, kids fall down. We all, you know, yeah. it's not as safety it, gone mad. <laughs> measles is not Ebola. No. Okay. Measles is a mild infection that apparently may even confer some additional protection against cancer later on in life. It may be a co-adapted uh, or on its way to becoming a co-adapted infection that actually has some health benefits. I'm not ready to scientifically, you know, give a scientific opinion that it does, but I'm willing to speculate that, you know, we, we could, I need to look at what we're doing to ourselves. Um, so as long as we have travel of vaccinated or unvaccinated people, the vaccination status has nothing to do with it, that can carry the measles into the United States, we're going to see outbreaks. As long as vaccinated people can have breakthrough infections that get misdiagnosed as measles, we're going to have false mm-hmm. alarm outbreaks. There was one outbreak in Michigan that was canceled. 
because uh, they made a big deal out of it. Oh, this person was here and this person was there and you, sh you should avoid, you know, if you were there, go to your doctor, only to turn out that it was a vaccine-induced rash. Well, th that, that actually happened in Ottawa recently, literally on the front page of the news, one person in Ottawa yeah. may, may, may have had measles and this is where they were at this and this time. And I'm yeah. like, really? Like if we were reporting like that in the 50s and 60s, I mean, that would be in the news every single day, um, you know, people having <laughs> measles parties, chicken pox parties and, and whatnot, you know, just one thing before you carry on that I think is, is important to point out here, you know, you talk about, and we're going to talk about this next is vaccine hesitancy, right? Yeah. And, you know, the recent Toronto Board of Health meeting, um, I read the, the news article that came out after that, right? And basically, I'm going to botch the numbers a little bit, but it was something along the lines of over the last six years, we've seen vaccine hesitancy, i.e. people that are, are opting out of getting shots, increase from 0.6% to 1.7%. Okay, so what we're really saying is we're saying that we actually have 98.3% uh, of people that are vaccinated. You know, and I think people kind of forget about this, you know, because when we talk about vaccine hesitancy and people opting out, people totally inflate that number and, you know, they think it's 20, 30 percent, 40 percent of people. And that's just really not the case at all. Um, right. So so if you look at those numbers, a lot of that is the change change in the way that they're counting vaccinated versus unvaccinated. So if you are if you have if you're of a certain age and you have all three boosters of MMR, you're vaccinated. Right. Okay. So in the past, they used to say if you had one exposure to MMR, you're vaccinated, you're partially vaccinated. And so they changed the way they're counting. So that's a big part of it. Um, another part of it is that people are becoming more vaccine risk aware. There's no doubt about yeah, 100%. it. And, and re regardless of their tr attempts to manipulate the perception that vaccines are 100% safe and effective, uh, the vaccine risk aware community grows every day because people die from vaccination. People die, uh, have uh, severe lifelong dis disability from vaccination and they have friend family members and they have friends and they have neighbors. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that the more you vaccinate, and, the, and then, of course, the governments need to understand this, when you lie to the population, and the, the biomedical po uh, uh, um, pediatricians need to pay heed to this too, when you lie to the population and say vaccines are 100% safe and effective, and you take away somebody's ability to walk as, after they trusted you, you have lost their trust. It's not just vaccine hesitancy. It's government hesitancy. It's mistrust in government that they're that they're causing. They're yeah. causing more vaccine risk awareness by not allowing people. And this is we're going to get to exemptions. Um, yes. Not allowing yeah. people to act on their own life experience. Right. So if if you go to a restaurant and you sit down at the restaurant, you have this delicious meal, and you go home and you're sick all night long because you're not going to go back to that restaurant. You yeah. have other choices, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you go to the doctor and you get a vaccine and you're sick as a dog or you're paralyzed, you're not going to go back. And so we, we need these exemptions because biomedical research absolutely has not kept up with in any way uh, the realities of the rates of the types or forms of vaccine injury that can occur. Instead, there's been a denialist agenda that shut down research on vaccine safety science, as Stell told you that there's not been reports to the to Congress, HHS was supposed to report. And so when people say vaccines are safe and effective, you say, okay, well, how do you know? And they say, well, no study has ever shown 
that vaccines cause autism. Well, I wasn't asking about autism. What about the rest of what can happen? Right. Well, nothing, nothing can happen. Or they say the rates are so low that we can't detect them scientifically. That's, so don't worry about it. And um, that's untrue. That's absolutely untrue. The, the, the reality is, is that the science is done so poorly that they can't detect it. The rates are high enough to detect. They just purposefully do the study in a manner that prevents, that allows them to say they didn't detect it. And that's scientific fraud. And the the that they're not the cat's out of the bag. They're not going to be able to put that cat back in the bag ever. Yeah. Well, I think also there's just some, I mean, obvious blind spots as well. You know, one is theirs and the um, the reporting system, you know, we don't even really have that here in, in Canada. I mean, in Canada, part of the bill that the Toronto Board of Health was pushing through and they voted on was, you know, yes, we want mandatory vaccinations. We are also at the same time, we want a, a reporting system for vaccine injuries, Okay. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we also want to create a vaccine injury compensation program. I mean, like if that is just not absolutely mind blowing to people that at the same time as you're pushing mandatory, you also want compensation and you also want a good reporting system. And that tells me that you know that there are injuries, but unfortunately (laughs) with theirs, I mean, we know that their internal report showed that um, only 1% of, of injuries are actually reported, which means that it's not one in a million. We're talking about, you know, um, the last data I think that we have, maybe have newer data than this, was I think 53 or 56,000 adverse um, reactions in 2016. Right. You know, tack a couple zeros onto that and you're talking about a few million people, which, which is, you know, that's the actual statistic. But the other blind spot I think that um, I would like to bring up is the fact that it's very difficult to track an adverse reaction unless it's short term. You know, so within six weeks, if you have some sort of adverse reaction, it's pretty easy to sort of correlate that with the vaccine itself. But if you get autoimmune disease, you know, 20 years down the road, um, how do you how do you map that back to a specific vaccine? Right. It's a great, it's a great question. And this they cook the books on this science, too. So what they do is they say, OK, we're going to track uh, particular types of vaccine adverse reaction for, say, 18 weeks. And then we're going to compare the rate of those potential adverse reactions from zero weeks to 18 weeks to 18 to 24 weeks, assuming that once you're 18 weeks out, that it clearly wasn't due to the vaccine. And then they say, okay, well, we did a statistical comparison of the rates of zero to 18 weeks to after 18 weeks, um, and they found no difference. I took the same data from the same time period, and I compared the 18 weeks, after 18 weeks rate to the national rate of um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, was the study I looked at. Uh, And the 18 week period was elevated statistically significantly from the national. And so, you know, they've cooked the books on that. So that, and this is, and vaccine, and then what happens is that our uh, compensation program, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which I'm an expert uh, um, uh, in, uh, expert witness on some cases in, and I am compensated from time to time, although I just refused compensation from from one case where the uh, special master, the judge, so to speak, tried to bribe me to give better test- testimony. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, it was quite overt. Um, so what they do then is they say, oh, well, this study showed that it's only uh, uh, it can only be attributed to um, the vaccine up to 18 weeks, and the study showed nothing of the sort. The study assumed that 
the study didn't develop new knowledge. And so they're taking an assumption, a baseline assumption made by the study and bringing it in as a conclusion of the study. And that's just an, a, a, a policy of misinterpretation of the science. And so you have to yeah. know what they're doing. In terms of what, you, what they're contemplating, if they're going to adopt an um, um, a, a adverse events reporting system, I would encourage... Uh, discussion on adopting what's called ESP VARES. This is the report that you were talking about. It was actually done by Harvard Pilgrim Health. It was mm -hmm. they were contracted by the CDC to develop a, a, a machine learning based automated de detector of uh, potential vaccine adverse events. Um, and when they unleashed it on the medical records of the study uh, in in one HMO, um, they found a hundredfold rate increase of potential adverse events. Well, what does that mean? It means that in the U.S. and in that HMO, the medical doctors were not reporting potential adverse events, not just that they weren't able to detect them, but they weren't reporting them to VAERS. And under U.S. law, they're required to report them to hmm. VAERS or they're in violation of the law, but there's no sanction. There's no penalty if they don't. And so I would encourage you know, discussion of considering adopting ESP VAERS um, in, in, in the interest of the safety of the population so that Toronto under, you know, your province understands. It'll be the whole province. Yeah. 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 The whole province understands, uh, what the actual risks and the rates are, uh, in terms of, uh, um, and this is what I told the people in New Brunswick, um, in terms of my opinion on why, ex uh, philosophical exemptions and religious exemptions are important. They allow the individual to learn from their personal experience in a manner that science is not yet ready to recognize what's happened to them. I think that's a, that's a yeah, important statement to make. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and therefore, you know, anyone who is participating in coercing families by threatening to take away their right to educate their children in public school, uh, threatening to coerce to throw them out of the practice, that coerced um consent coercion of consent to a medical procedure is is morally um disambiguous this this is not uh, allowed this is wrong i mean it's just a moral wrong in terms of biomedical ethics uh at two levels uh, f certainly there's the level of whether or not you're uh, being coerced to consent to a biomedical procedure hmm. but in 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 the united states at least um every vaccine is subject to post-market surveillance studies. So you're coercing your patient or your pa or your or your student into participating in a human subject study. And at Nuremberg, when they found that Nazi doctors were doing this, they held the individual Nazi doctors responsible, regardless of party policy. So there hmm. will there may very well come a time and I foresee a time in which school administrators, um, in which um, uh, uh, nurses at school are held accountable individually for the damages associated with coerced enrollment in a clinical study. That's a new, uh, that's a new angle that I've been trying to popularize and talk about. But uh, Well, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because, you know, for, for many years, um, obviously, for those of you who don't know who are listening, um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies have full exemption 
uh, from liability, right? So mm-hmm. they're they're not held to any liable standards. This is um, you know on the back. Yeah, that's of for a, injury. Of, that, that, of, that's for injury, right? right. For injury, right? Um, so then, of course, we also know that medical professionals are not liable either, right? So I always said, well, look, if if we want to have mandatory vaccinations. Well, what we should then have is we should have a form that you can give to your doctor that says the doctor acknowledges that there are risks and if there are any side effects um, and any complications, I assume full responsibility as the physician or the nurse or whoever, right? And and of course, if you actually did that, because um, I believe some people have done that, this is purely anecdotal, of course, it's just like there's no way they're going to sign it, right? But But here's the problem. The problem is that I, I know personally, I know people whose kids have been vaccinated at school without their consent. In other words, they go to school and guess what? It's Gardasil Day or whatever's going on and boom, they get a shot without consent. I think, you know, I mean, in, in some senses, I would actually almost map that as uh, practicing medicine without a license. That's, that's, that's a good thought on that. Um, sure. Uh, so... We've been we've been patient. The population has the people have been patient. We've been kind. We've been polite. We have been asking. We've been pleading. All right. We've been pleading for reason and rationality. And it is time for us not to ask a doctor to sign a form, but it's time for us to inform them that they're in violation of the National Code of Ethics in Canada for enrolling people in human subjects trials. It's time for us to inform medical practitioners and school boards and school administrators that they are their party to coercion of the population into um, clinical studies, post-market surveillance studies, without consent. And that consent is required. There's a Code of Federal Regulations that affords special protections for pregnant women and special protections for children against being experimented on. This isn't just, you know, this isn't late, late night radio. This isn't late night radio where we're talking about UFOs and flat earth and conspiracy yeah, yeah. and <laughs> Illuminati. We're talking about the standards of practice of human subject studies that every biomedical research is trained on every year in the United States. In, in Canada, I would imagine as well. There are certain ways that everyone should conduct. Well, the school administrators don't realize that they're potentially party to coerced inclusion in biomedical research. Studies. And it is coercion. It's coercion it's because coercion. It, it's coercion because here's here's the thing, right? It's always positioned as mandatory. It has been for the it's ever since I started looking into this. The amount of people that would come to me and say, "Oh no, I have I have to get the shots." My kids have to, and I'm like, no, you don't. And they're like, what do you mean? The doctor, the nurse, the principal at the school, whoever, they told me that I have to get it, that it was mandatory. So verbally, we're saying that it's mandatory, which you know we know that it's not at this point. That is a full, that's coercion tactics. I mean, right there. It is. And it is. It's shocking. It is. You know, I mean, like knowing what we know now and based on our hour and a half conversation here, the fact that they're trying to ram this through as a mandatory you know, I'm, I'm not like, I just want to say this, and I think you're in the same camp because I've read this from you. This is no longer a discussion of pro, pro-vax versus anti-vax. That, that's not what this is about anymore. Right. This is about medical freedom of choice. This is about body sovereignty. Th- th- that's what we're talking about. And my concern here is that what happens now, you know, let's just say, for example, we have a measles epidemic, right? Which we don't. But 
the media, social media just pumps it out. We've got this epidemic. I think last year there was 122 cases of measles in 36 million people in Canada. Yeah. No one has died for many, many years. Right. But nonetheless, we position it that way. And then we pass a precedent that calls for mandatory vaccinations, right? And great. So now everyone gets mandatory shots. But what happens down the line when we say, well, look, we've now developed a vaccine for diabetes. Mm-hmm. Diabetes rates are going to triple by 2030. Mm-hmm. Um, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is, is an epidemic as well, right? Look how many people have Alzheimer's. Well, we have an Alzheimer's vaccine. So guess what? Now that that's mandatory, we're going to now mandate that in adults as well. So everyone roll up your sleeves. We've got a right. hundred patented vaccines in the background, just waiting to get rolled out. And we'll mm-hmm. just deal with the aftermath of that because you're going to have to now prove as the general public, the right. onus will be on you to show that there was an adverse reaction and you got to prove that. That's my thought process on this, which I don't know if I'm right or not, but that's... Uh, yeah, that's where it's, that's definitely where it's going, Brett. So even the MMR, chickenpox, everyone, they'll say, you know, you've got to get all the adults have to get these childhood vaccines now because, you know, we got to we need to reach herd immunity. Well, we're not at herd immunity if, you know, 70 percent or 80 percent of the population doesn't have their hasn't been vaccinated since 19 whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, but um you know, we're, we're facing a, a, an uncertain future when it comes to infectious disease in vaccinating populations anyway, because as the vaccine starts to fail, and they are starting to fail, and vaccines become irrelevant to the appearance of symptoms, that's what's next, right? So there's a natural kind of senescence to a vaccine. They either have to update the vaccine, or people are going to get raging cases of measles and mumps and everything else in spite of being vaccinated, and it's going to happen to everyone. And then the population is going to remember those people who voted the mandates and say, why did you mandate a useless product, a useless pharmaceutical product? You mentioned holding doctors responsible. The history in the United States, (coughs) excuse me, went like this. The vaccine manufacturers went to Congress and said, listen, we have too many liability suits against us. We're losing our shirts. We can't, this is not profitable for us. We're going to stop making vaccines. Uh, what can you do for us? The, the, the government said, go, to, go talk to the insurance companies. The insurance companies said, no, 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 there's way too much liability here because there's so many vaccine injuries, right, that we don't want to touch it. So the, the vaccine manufacturers went back to the, uh, Congress and said, listen, we're going to stop making vaccines unless you remove liability. Well, they also remove liability for medical physicians. There's there's no liability in the United States for medical physicians not being held accountable. That's why we have to start informing them where their liabilities do exist. You are coercing me without my consent or my child's consent into a post-market surveillance research, human subjects research study. And um, not asking them, do you realize, informing them of the whatever the regulations are in Canada, whatever the relations are, relation, uh, regulations are in the United States, informing them that that alone is actionable in a court of law. Just coercing somebody, attempting to coerce them, is actionable. It's against the law in the United States to do that. And we're not looking whether the child vaccinates or doesn't vaccinate, whether the child's injured or does not injured. The injury is the coercion. It's one and the same. And so holding everybody accountable who's party to the action of coercing people into post-market surveillance studies, I think is the winning, the winning strategy. 
uh, if you guys are still fighting for this, um, we are right right now at time of recording. That is what's going on right now, this minute, because the, the the way that it works here. Sorry to interject, but this this is a city vote. So the Toronto Board of Health essentially pushed um, unanimously for mandatory vaccinations, a vaccine injury program, uh, a comp- sorry, a vaccine injury reporting system plus a compensation program. But what happens now is that the province, because we have provincially regulated um, healthcare. The, the province now, the provincial government essentially has to sign off on that. And then what we would expect to see is province-wide uh, mandatory vaccinations. And, and as far as I know, none of the um, provincial politicians have, have actually said that they are opposed to mandatory vaccines. In fact, I think they're all pushing for it, right? Okay, so there's a Research Ethics Board Operational Policy Framework, Health Canada and Public Health Agency of Canada, issued um, in 2010. Uh, that I would look up and I would bring that to them. Um, I'll send you the link. Yeah, please uh, do. And and it, it mentions coercion, it, it, confidentiality, all these other rights that that happen. Um, I'm sure that it's in here where it says you you cannot coerce a patient to be in a clinical trial. Now, in mm-hmm. the United States, they passed something uh, called the 21st Century Cures Act, which is one of these like self-contradictory regulations where the the 21st century cures act has a clause in it that says that doctors can enroll patients in clinical studies without the patient's knowledge as long as long as the irb the institutional review board has determined that the risk to the patient is minimal Hmm. so if you go to your doctor and you've been on blood pressure medication nobody wants that anymore right because of the cancer scare right but let's say you're on blood pressure medication for 10 years and it's working um, and you, uh, the doctor under U.S. law can change the drug that you're taking without changing the label on the bottle that you receive at the pharmacy. And if there's adverse events, well, that's because they, you know, assumed that it was safe and it's not a problem. And it may or may not ever be attributed to that. You could die as a result of this, but they, they assumed that it was safe. So if they would try to apply this 21st Century Cures Act clause to vaccine safety science, post-market surveillance science, it doesn't work because the post-market surveillance science itself is supposed to determine if the vaccine is safe. So you can't assume the vaccine is safe, enroll people in a post-market surveillance study, right, on the assumption that it's safe to determine that it's safe. It just doesn't make any logical sense. Oh, right. Sense. It doesn't <laughs> yeah, pass, yeah. It doesn't pass the sniff test in a court of law. It's circular, yeah. It's totally circular. So, you yeah. know, I think I think we're what 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 I would um what I what I would do is would be to educate that city council that mm. if there is any coercion of citizens to enroll in post market surveillance studies, that they will individually be held liable for that coercion. I think because it's a good yeah at, good point at, of leverage. Mm-hmm. At, at Nuremberg, right? They didn't say, oh, I'm just following orders, and that's a good excuse. At Nuremberg, they said it doesn't matter if you're following orders. The policy of the Nazi party does not excuse your personal behavior, your individual wow. behavior. Wow. And, and I think that's the only way to, to, to stop in its tracks. So why, why, I mean, why do you think that all of a sudden now, I mean, because, you know, yes, there was Vaxxed, which was a couple of years ago, you know, but what I've noticed, I mean, in the last... I would say maybe five years, and especially in the last year, I mean, this whole this whole situation has just escalated like out of control. 
I mean, you know, we've seen now what's happened in California, in New York. I mean, there's, they're trying to push a bill through in New York now where they have these quasi-concentration camps, you know, quarantine camps for people that uh, are homeschooling and choosing to not vaccinate. I mean, that, that, that's a bill that's been put on the table. And I just wondered to myself, like, what's going on out there in the background that we don't know about? And why is this all trying to be rushed and pushed through when we don't really have a public health crisis? We, we, we don't have all of a sudden thousands of people dropping dead from measles and mumps right. and whatever else. Right. So perhaps you got some insight on that. Um, after looking at this problem for a number of years and seeing it all unfold, uh, 100% of this is pharma-induced animus for legislation so Merck can keep their contract. It is fraud. It's the big lie. The bigger the lie, right? The, the more people will believe it. And it's not going to work. It can't possibly work because the logical consequence of vaccine failure is you may still have this contract, but eventually everyone's going to realize that even at 100% vaccination, the vaccine is not stopping the transmission of And we're already seeing pathogen. it. Right. I mean, it's already happening but, out but, there, yeah. But not everybody's realizing it. So that's the point. So it's mm -hmm. just a matter of time. Before yeah. the entire population becomes aware that they are still susceptible to pertussis infection, they're still that you know they, 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 there was a there was a disgusting um, advertising campaign in the United States where they had grandmothers and grandfathers holding the baby, and the grandmothers and grandfathers' head morphed into a wolf, as if the, they're a threat from pertussis. But the grandmother and the grandfather are not the ones with the vaccine silenced asymptomatic pertussis. It's the doctors. So I made mm -hmm. a meme. I made a copy of a doctor holding an infant with their wolf, you know, changing the, changing the doctor's head of the wolf. Um, this, this is a serious scientific reality. The scientific reality is eventually each and every citizen and everyone who's cast a vote thinking they're doing the right thing in this conspiracy of good will realize what they've done. And the, it's incredibly important that each and every person that casts the vote the wrong way be held accountable politically. Mm. They have to be changed. They have to be called out on the carpet for not doing due diligence and understanding what they're voting about. And you know, there was a, there was a bill in Michigan, I don't think it passed into a law, but there's a bill in Michigan put forward by one legislator who wanted all vaccine decisions about what the schedule in the state of Michigan, um, uh, what, the, what the schedule looked like to pass through the, the state legislature. So that the, rather than the Board of Health, rather than the Department of Health, because parents go to the legislators to complain about vaccine injury, they don't go to the Department of Health to complain about vaccine injury. And so you know, at that point in time, you know, he's like, I want to be held accountable. If I make a bad decision on vaccines and I make a, the wrong vote, I want me and my colleagues to be held accountable because the departments of health are not accountable. They're appointed. And uh, like in Allegheny County Board of Health, the, the director of the, of the uh, Department of Health, his wife works for a pharmaceutical company. It's incredible how the conflicts of interest are. Well, and, yeah, I, I was going to say that. I mean, you know, th that I think is is probably the big challenge. Um, I, I'm not as well versed. I mean, 
here in Canada, it's things are a little bit different. Like I know there's lobbying, you know, et cetera, but uh, health Canada, I'm not even going to talk about that today, but I know that health Canada and um, the pharmaceutical industry, I mean, there are all sorts of perks. Um, you know, Shiv Chopra, Dr. Shiv Chopra wrote a great book on, he was, he was a whistleblower for health Canada, basically lost his job, um, after 35 years and wrote a book called corrupt to the core. So listeners, if you want to deep dive into how health Canada operates, it's very, very similar to how the FDA operates, the CDC operates and so on. But my point here is that, um, and the pharmaceutical industries, right? My point here is that the, the regulatory offices together with the pharmaceutical industry um and then the, 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 you you it's a revolving door first of all and then when you double down and you're lobbying and you're spending i mean as far as i know correct me but i believe that pharmaceutical lobbyists outnumber all other lobbyists by two to one you, you know so, so when they're paying the the uh, and the the recent bill in california uh, someone did a great screenshot you know, the, the, the live hole where they're all voting, I, 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 screenshot of that and then a screenshot of where all their campaign donations came from. Every single one of them were receiving anywhere from, from sixty dollars to $100,000. That used to be illegal. It used, there, was a, there was a politician in, um, in Pennsylvania that actually held a, a press conference and shot himself in the head because he was taking money from a company. And then they changed the laws across the United States to allow them to take money from corporations through you know, campaign finance reform. Um, it, 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 I, I speak with very colorful terms, but I have no doubt about it that we live. We're, we're, we, we now live in the United States in a fascist uh, pharma, pharma, pharmatopia. It's a, it's a pharmacocracy. Um, so in Canada, you know, you do have in the Health Canada Services Science Research Ethics Board, there's a section 8.2 on recruitment of research subjects. This is how protected you are about being not enrolled in post-market surveillance studies. And this is the, it's section 8.2. Uh, it is um, on recruitments of research subjects. Whether their requirements for free and informed consent are met, these, this is considerations that must be given. Whether the requirements for free informed consent are met, including that it must be voluntarily given and without a risk of real or perceived manipulation, undue influence, or coercion. That right there makes any mandate without a philosophical exemption a violation of this policy. So I'll be sure to send that to you. And you yes, can send it I'll to be sure to throw that up in the show notes and um, I'll share that around as well with some people. Um, so I, th- I think um, I think we can let, let's wrap it up. What do you think, Jack? Any, anything else that you want to um, chat about that we haven't uh, spoken about? Well, I absolutely have to do, as the CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, I have to do due diligence and I have to pitch the organization. Oh, 100%. Right. So the best way to find IPAC is at ipaknowledge.org. That's ipaknowledge.org. It's 1K, not 2. Um, you know, we, we do research in the public interest. We're funded 100% by the public. The very best way to support IPAC uh, is through monthly donations, not a one-time donation, which we'll accept if you can only do a one-time donation. Uh, but monthly donations would be outstanding because it stabilizes uh, the finances, obviously. I'd rather have a small monthly donation than a larger one-time. Um, it allows us to plan 
uh, to hire more researchers and to pay, you know, to plan our budget going forward. We do not take any research money from or any money from pharmaceutical companies. We will never take research money from any government agency, state, federal, or otherwise. Um, and you know, like I said, we have another uh, 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 review uh, of aluminum uh, in peer review right now. We're just about to embark uh, when the data are properly formatted on a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study using the data from Dr. Paul Thomas's uh, practice um, in Oregon. And rather than do these silly association studies that don't test causality, you know, anybody that's had any uh, statistics at all, you look at the chi-square test, that's an association study, not to get too technical, but it doesn't test causality. You can look at I, there's a relationship, say, between smoking, male, female, and gender, uh, and, you know, uh, smoking and gender, like sm- uh, but that relationship is not necessarily causal, uh, just because it's statistically significant. And so what we're doing is we're putting the causality question aside, and we're ta- he has uh, thousands of patients that were born into his practice over 10 years, and some are fully vaccinated, some are partially vaccinated, and some are unvaccinated. And we're going to use the data to try to see if we can predict, given the history, the family history, um, the rates of early onset of uh, uh, symptoms like eczema, uh, ear infection, vaccination exposure, could we predict who would have developed any neurodevelopmental disorder? Can we predict who would have developed any autoimmune disorder? So we'll have models that allow us to, they're actionable clinical models that would allow us to say with some degree of accuracy, if we're successful, um, in a generalizable way, uh, that we we can predict who's going to have these serious adverse events. You know, 54% of uh, American citizens' uh, children uh, have a chronic illness, and we want to be able to be able to predict who's going to develop them so that they can prevent that um, by changing you know, the medical practice or doing something else. Maybe there's other ways of we can do yeah. some medical intervention to prevent it. Um, imagine being able to start treating for rheumatoid arthritis before you have a symptom. Mm-hmm. So rather than mm-hmm. ever getting a symptom, you're at 99% chance of getting rheumatoid arthritis. And now the second study that we're going to do with Dr. Paul is a prospective study, and hopefully we'll have genetic data there too. So this is the people's science. And it sounds like something from China. When I first said that, my boys, <laughs> my boys who were teenagers laughed at me. The people's science. This is not the NIH. This is not a bi- big biomedical facility. I'm not a, re- a university researcher. Um, I stepped out of that position from a faculty position to do service research like this in the university. But uh, IPAC is 100% independent. We, we're not beholden to anyone, and I want to say if you mm-hmm. make a donation, we'll put it to good use. So go to ipaknowledge.org. We, we really, really seriously could use uh, $20, $25 monthly donation. Uh, if you can give more, by, by all means. If you, give, if you can only give less, don't feel bad. It's not going to be embarrassing to give a dollar. We have a lot of $1 <laughs> donations. We, mm-hmm. we will put every penny to good use. Yeah, and I'll uh, obviously throw that up in the show notes. Um, but before, uh, I wanted to ask you one question. Um, based on this predictive modeling, do you think that we could get to a point where we might be able to predict who would have an adverse reaction to what vaccine? Yes. Once we publish this, if we're successful in publishing it, it should 
uh, start a new era in vaccine safety science where no more association studies are done. Uh, pharmaceutical companies would have every reason to do this kind, to adopt this kind of science. It, yeah. it allows them to get ahead of the game because the medical doctors, everybody should get behind it. The pop, the people should mm-hmm. get behind it. The pediatricians should get behind it. Legislators should get behind it. Oh wow! Okay, now we have a model that predicts. You don't hurt the you don't hurt the child first. Give them a medical exemption because of a contraindication. Like you know, if you have a if you have a problem with pertussis vaccination, we're not going to vaccinate you it again. That's cruel. Why put the child through pain and suffering to begin with? Well, again, why make it mandatory? Like this, this is my point again, is knowing what we know, you know, you're getting into pharmacogenomics, you're getting into pharmacokinetics, you're getting into the genetic side of things. Like we know, I mean, the Institute of Medicine's original position, there's a paper going back before they changed, right? Before the helm changed. And they basically were pretty open. Like we know that adverse reactions exist. I mean, plain and simple, it's there. Now their positions changed. But my point is that we, I think it's clear as daylight that we know that adverse reactions exist. So how can you then make it mandatory and say that every single person should get it? So I love what you're doing and I love what you're proposing because I think that's a a great way to split the difference. And- And and I think also um, what it will hopefully do is it will hopefully um, squash this mandatory agenda. But um, let let's see. Maybe it's a little too utopian. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I think I think eventually, a hundred years from now, people are going to look back at this age of this legislation, and they're going to look at the fact that we're injecting aluminum into our pregnant women and uh, infants, and 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 they're going to think that we're crazy. Yeah, they're actually going to think that we were insane. And um, I think that we're insane to do it now. Uh, but I do want to say, to, uh, to be 100% sure, that if we have prediction models that allow us to predict who would have a serious adverse event to a vaccine, we still have to respect choice. Exactly. We still have to respect that bodily autonomy for the, for the, for the mere fact that under no other circumstances would anyone ever say, you have to sacrifice your child for mine. No one would say you have to, like I heard Dell say it once, you know, that you have to lay your, your child face down in a river so that my child can walk over that child to get it to the other side safely. Right? This is not who we are as a species. This is not who we are as peoples. It's, it's cruel. It's, it's uh, divisive. And, you know, the only difference between people who don't want to vaccinate and people who do want to vaccinate in the current setting with the current vaccines is the degree of ignorance. And the, the people who don't want to vaccinate, I think about 90% of them uh, learn the hard way through personal experience with vaccine injury. You know what? It's funny you say that because at that board of health meeting, you know, everyone, the, the headlines, of course, the next day, anti-vaxxers come out and clash with city councils. Like that's not what happened at all. Everyone was super polite. Everyone was sitting there quietly in the background. And what actually, what was actually going on is they were not anti-vaxxers, they were ex-vaxxers. Exactly. Every single one of them had lost a child or had become disabled themselves or had got juvenile arthritis or whatever the case. Every single person, there was not one person who stood up at that meeting that was just there because they wanted to stick the finger to the pharmaceutical companies or whatever. It was all personal experience. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that we lose sight of that in the public space because everyone just thinks that it's these you know, nut job um, homeschoolers that are just, they've drank the Kool-Aid or something. 
and and they're just crazy people, you know. And and I think that when you get into the discussions, you will find that people who are opposed to vaccines are actually very well researched um, through their own personal experience, right? You know, they, right. they believed in the system, they took the shots, they believed their doctor, they trusted their doctor, and they paid the they paid the price, and that forced them to go and look at some of the information that you shared with us today. Well, I, I used to lecture my sister. She has 10 children. I used to lecture her that she was going to be the end of humanity if she didn't vaccinate her kids. So I'm living proof that the only difference between people who want to vaccinate and people who don't want to vaccinate is the degree of ignorance. Uh, it, it's Education is uh, essential. That's why they want to shut us down on, on, on uh, social media. That's why they want to shut us down with uh, uh, censorship. But that, too, is not going to work because... We have the right to um, to get together and each and, and we'll, we'll we'll take it to the streets. We'll meet in each other's homes. We'll do phone calls. You know, they're not going to be able to censor us. Um, and uh, every day, they continue to injure people. The vaccine risk aware movement's going to grow. X factors are going to grow. Um, and uh, if pharmaceutical companies want to have a successful future of being part of future health. In these populations, they have to get a, they got they have to get ahead of this. They have to get ahead of this and own this problem. If they don't own the problem, they will go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then of course that that now will spill over into other areas where it could be really dangerous for us. You know, um, antibiotic resistant or drug resistant bacteria, for example, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are legitimate benefits. We we, we do need drug companies for some things. Well, um, yeah, well, we do, but you know, are they providing new drugs at a rate every every month, every year? to the tune of trillions of dollars. And what they're doing is, of course, you know, you, you have vac lifelong vaccine debilitating chronic illness that then you need a pharmaceutical product for. 100%, yeah. Right? Yeah. And the vaccine failure, it will be their undoing because like antibiotic resistance, because these bugs are evolving, the vaccine types are evolving, um, that will, everyone will soon see that there's absolutely no, no benefit. Uh, and it's no longer going to be a question of pediatricians are going to see there's no benefit. I have a practice that's full of people with chicken pox, even though I vaccinated every one of them. What's going on? I mean, it's just a matter of time. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much, Jack. That was um, awesome. Uh, we spent a good chunk of time. And with topics like this, I think it's important to spend a lot of time because there really is a lot of information to cover. And, um, you know, long form discussion for these types of, uh, of, of topics is, is really key, I feel. Um, so I'm going to throw up all of your uh, links um, on on the show notes. So um, you guys can, you, those of you listening out here, you can connect with Jack um, through social media, through his website uh, and so on. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. Really appreciate you um, carving out some time for me. You're welcome. And if you, if, if you are into podcasts, we have the WWDNYK studios set up. That's what I'm talking to you from. It's the, what we do not yet know studios, the WWDNYK nice. studios. <laughs> and uh, one of our podcasts is unbreaking science. That's unbreaking as in it's broken and let's unbreak it. I didn't want to use fix it for obvious reasons. It sounds like we're fixing science, right? But unbreaking science. And also another one that we're planning to do, it will have nothing to do with vaccines. We'll take my brains, my smarts, my humor, and we'll do something called talk nerdy to me. And we're just going to talk about anything and everything except for vaccines as related to science, math, cool. philosophy, life, and so on. So thank you, Brad. I've really awesome. enjoyed myself today. You're a great host, and I appreciate your time. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. And for those of you watching, um, as always, if you enjoyed the show, please uh, subscribe, leave us a review, and most importantly, get this out to your friends, your family, your community, social media, and uh, help me to bring more awesome guests like Dr. Jack. So uh, thanks for tuning in once again, and you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are.